Anne Lindt and Tokyo Migration is supported by the Migration Research Group and the Department of Politics at the University of Sheffield. I don't think anyone will have missed that the royal wedding between American actress Meghan Markle and Prince Harry is happening this week. Markle has moved to the UK and she's expected to become the Duchess of Sussex after the wedding. But not all family migration procedures are quite so joyful and straightforward. In a new research paper, Dr. Marcia Vera Espinosa and Dr. Joe Turner, both at the Department of Politics at the University of Sheffield, investigate the intimacy of the family migration visa application in the UK. They both have personal experiences of the visa application process, which is also part of the research. And the disruption, fear and anxiety that they describe is quite far from a fairy tale royal wedding. To start us off, I asked Joe Turner to give an historical overview of the family migration visa regime in the UK. So I should warn you, this is pretty much the first half of my current book project, so be warned and let me know if I'm going for too long. Um, so I think there are pretty much two histories here that are often told as unrelated. One is a history of a distinct policy regulating the legal category of what we know as family migration, and the other is a history of where ideas of family come from. So, i.e. the history of who gets viewed legally as a recognised family and the types of exclusion that produces. Um, and this is often an untold story which is wrapped up with European colonialism and a history of ideas about the types of kinships and affective bodily relationships that are viewed as improper, deviant or non-normative. So I'd argue that we need to see these histories in unison because immigration categories are legal recognitions of particular cultural ideas about intimacy. Equally because who moves to the UK, who is affected by immigration practices, particularly family immigration practices, and what drives the control of movement is still governed by what Luke de Naranja has recently called the grooves of imperialism. So there's been a lot of work that has emerged in the last few years tracing the recent turn towards European states clamping down on family migration. Um, it's often something that's viewed as intensified from the mid-1990s onwards. So we can identify increasing restrictions in the UK from about that period of time. But we also need to excavate the much longer history of this. So for instance, from 1870 it was decreed that British women would automatically lose their citizenship if they married a foreign spouse. Okay, so they lost their entitlement to British citizenship. Children of those women also lost their legal entitlement to British citizenship, so they were d dispossessed of it by their affiliation to a, a foreign partner. And so this reminds us that the main route of citizenship um, from the 9th century onwards is, is through the heterosexual family. And we can see uh, nascent practices of regulating family migration, which were experimented with across the British Empire. So, for example, in the late 9th century, the movement of indentured labourers, usually from India, um, was controlled through ideas of family. So indentured labourers had a right to move across the British Empire and bring their families with them under imperial law, but when they went to settler colonies, um, though often restrictions were brought in to stop them moving and settled, um, and this, this meant that scrutiny was often placed on the type of family relationships that they had, and this was often based upon Eurocentric notions of family. So we find even in this period, in the late part of the 19th century, distinctions over who was a legal or illegal family migrant, or to put it in kind of more current lexicon, genuine or ungenuine. So what we come to know with family migration as a particularly distinct legal category um, tends to intensify after World War II, um, what 
has been talked about more recently in the press, um, alongside the, the Windrush generation and their movement to the, to the UK. Um, so with most immigration law in this period, this fixated on Commonwealth citizens um, who were racialised as non-white moving to the UK. So in this period, European family um, migrating were not seen as a problem. So whilst Commonwealth citizens had a right to settle in the UK, this was increasingly restricted from the 1960s and 1970s onwards. And the, the gender dimensions of this are quite telling. So the movement of women in this period was often viewed as initially beneficial because it was viewed as, as pacifying men of colour who were often seen as a sexual threat to white British women. But in, so in this regard, male spouses were viewed with suspicion by border agents. Um, and in 1969, the Labour Party blocked the movement of male spouses to join their families. So as restrictions on work permits grew, family migration routes often remained the only way for British subjects to settle in the UK, as increasing restrictions took place during the 60s and 70s. Um, and so the types of families that could move um, were scrutinised by border officials, usually in relationship to Eurocentric ideas of what constitutes a family, and Orientalist ideas about South Asian family and Afro-Caribbean um, family structures. So perhaps the most notorious example of this are the body examinations and virginity tests that took place at UK airports on female spouses arriving in the late 1970s. So here, border agents carried out bodily inspections of women's hymens in order to judge whether they were genuinely engaged um, to their reported fiancés. Um, that's because travelling as a, as a fiancé didn't need to have a visa, so the border guards, using deep-seated colonial ideas about chaste Asian um, brides and conservative ideas about sexuality and passive femininity, these ideas uh, were brought in to basically restrict uh, uh, fiancés moving. So, and I'll, I'll try and speed up to, to date at this point. So the whole family migration route was overhauled with the introduction of the primary purpose route in 1979. Now this was a particularly draconian policy that's become quite infamous. So this, this was a rule that any spouse partner that had to prove, um, basically had to prove that they had a primary purpose of moving for family life and that they wouldn't benefit from settlement in the UK. So what this did from the from 1980s onwards is essentially create a colour bar on family migration. So it meant that people moving from poorer colonies um, found it extremely difficult to disprove that they wouldn't benefit from settlement in the UK, um, while allowing white spouses and partners from uh, settler colonies or kind of historical settler colonies to move there. Um, and this particularly affected male spouses from South Asia. So this system was overturned by the Labour government in 1997. Um, but the history of the last two decades of policy reform has basically been the gradual reintroduction of the primary purpose rule. So tellingly, we have the same justifications used to erect primary purpose. They're drawn upon in familiar ways in recent policy changes. That is to limit the number of people moving in particular parts of the world, often from ex-colonies, um, to restrict settlement and to cut off the means to reproduce diasporic communities and their cultural links to the UK. Um, so this has taken various forms, which we'll sketch out, and maybe we can kind of look into more detail in the next question. Um, but this has taken various forms, such as placing emphasis on couples to prove they are genuine, raising the level of the English requirement, um, and then the introduction of the high salary threshold in 2012, which is the kind of the most recent dominant uh, policy change. Um, and this, this, these kind of recent policy changes have been justified 
Um, rhetorically is about focusing on sham marriages, um, but of course we know that ideas around who is a genuine family is rooted in dominant ideas about the white heterosexual family, um, and thus who bears a, a likeness to that ideal. I can go on further. Uh, no, like well, on no, I'm gonna um, ask about well, like you said, the more specificities of today's mm. policies in relation to uh, the royal wedding. But I was just, if you could just quickly say something about how unique is the UK policy mm. in comparison maybe to other European countries, for example? Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So um, there are income thresholds pretty much across EU states, generally. But the, there's a, a real variety in the types of um, income thresholds that they have. So as a policy, it's, it's fairly well widespread. Um, but in terms of the amount of money they ask for, the kind of the final detail of that is a little bit different. Um, so, for example, the UK um, is currently at say eighteen thousand six hundred pounds per couple. Right? So they have to jointly earn that amount. So that's one hundred and forty percent more than the national minimum wage, or at least when it was brought in in two thousand twelve. I haven't worked out the <laughs> most recent calculation of that. Um, but say in Germany, for instance, there's an income threshold, but it, it works out about seven hundred pounds a month. Right. right, so it's a lot less. Um, in Finland, it's uh, 1700 and then on top of that, for each dependent, it goes up quite rapidly by around about 200 or 300 euros mm. per, per child. Um, yeah, interestingly, Spain actually has one of the highest thresholds, Spain, so it's 150% of the national right. income. Um, so it is, it is a generic policy um, across the UK, and the kind of you know, countries yeah. have kind of competed to, to catch up with each other in that respect. One thing maybe that you just said in the beginning was you said that this is also tied into the kind of notions of, and cultural ideas of mm. what, uh, what a family is. Yeah. And I suppose something that all countries have in common is that family is just children and spouse, right? Not necessarily no? across the EU. I mean, I mean, EU law generally is a lot more forgiving of different kinship structures. So, for instance, like, you know, if you're in the EU citizen in, um, in the UK for the moment, um, you can bring other dependents in on, on EU visas. Right? Um, in Italy, it's about dependents. So okay, it's so not it necessarily... As well. Yeah, it could be elderly relatives. Right. In the case of the UK, you're right, it's entirely about that notion of the, of the nuclear family. Mm. And that's about two people in a romantic, monogamous relationship, and it's sort of defined in those terms, and about biological children primarily um, and it is also about adopted children as well but of course the kind of the bureaucratic and evidential trail of that it's quite problematic yeah because right? not all countries have the same process of adoption as let's mm. say let's say the UK does so there are there are issues with the kind of evidence and structure there but yeah you're right it's mainly about yeah the nuclear family. Of the, family so I think the picture you've painted is that it's not so easy to be a family migrant which we'll probably get onto more <laughs> but it is quite easy I think if you're marrying the prince um, of the UK <laughs> so Meghan Markle uh, British um, US citizen yeah. and I think she's been um, going out with um, Prince Harry for what two years or something like that mm -hmm. um, 
And I gather that if you've been such a short... Well, she hasn't actually even lived in the UK mm. yet. If that was the case and you weren't marrying a prince, then the situation would be quite different. So, yeah. um, so could you maybe draw out, you know, what's going on here? Yeah. What's this fast-track uh, route all about? Sure, sure. Well, I mean, I think this reveals sort of, you know, quite overtly that no borders can and do exist, right? depending upon how wealthy you are, but also, of course, kind of deep intersections about different oppressions of race, class, gender, and sexuality as well, of course. I mean, it, it's worth noting that you can still buy into British citizenship. Right? Right. But, you know, so there's a, there's a, a tier one um, investor route for British citizenship, where if you pay two million pounds and invest that, um, you, can, you can settle within a number of years. If you invest... Ten million pounds, you can get in. You can get British citizenship in two years. If you invest five million pounds, you can do it in three years. So this isn't just; an, it's an exception, the Meghan Markle situation. But it, it, there are other routes that you can basically buy your way in. Of course, how most people um, settle in the UK through the, through the family route is that's drastically different. Right. So maybe we can kind of tease out some yeah, of the, yeah. the, the kind of the things you can go through. Maybe Matthew. Want to join in on some of the things I might miss? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. Um, I think the, there's there's a lot of difference between the fast track. That also, the, according to what I have read, the fast track is a discretionary measure that the Home Office can take. You mm. know, so they they have the power in some cases to decide what fast track. You know, who, who which families have the right to fast track. That not all of them. And mm. I think Colin Gio, you know, a barrister mm. and, uh, and his blog have done a very good. Uh, job trying to outline the different scenarios in relation to Harry mm. and Meghan so I would recommend to check it out that as well um, but for the rest of people that get married normally and that <laughs> doesn't belong to royalty there's other type of experience and other type of cost so um, as well Joe already outlined it there's a longer period so you, you mentioned at some point Clara when we were talking about this podcast how people assume that once that you get married to a citizen as, as um, to a British citizen you become a, re, a citizen as well which is not true you know it's a very long process um, and it's in, in general it should be two years and a half the first application then you renew for another two years and a half after five years you can per apply for the permanent uh, the indefinite leave to remain and after that you can apply to naturalization so we're talking for a period at least of six seven years mm -hmm. and around ten thousand pounds in general if you consider all application and that if they, if you don't have children so that's six seven years not of being married but of living in the uk as married or well you know of living in the uk being married with the with the spouse visa basically yeah. so there's different also there's different ways to get into the country so for instance uh, if you are already in the UK under another type of visa, a student, mm. you know, tier two, and you met your partner, you can get married here. And then you can apply to spouse visa and that start, you know, the, the countdown start from that point. Now, if you are abroad and you met, for instance, in holiday, you know, in Australia, I don't know, mm. or <laughs> don't working in the United States and you decide to bring your partner to the UK, you need to apply for another fiancé visa or a visa that is kind of show that you have the intention to marry. So basically there are short-term visas exactly for that. Mm. So much speculations have been in the case of Meghan Markle if she's going to need to apply for that visa because at the moment she's, she doesn't reside in the UK. You know, but for the rest of people, if you want to get married and bring your partner from abroad, you need to do that. Yeah. Well, now the other problem as well is that within the process, for instance, um, within those five years, 
you and your partner decide to move somewhere else, you cut the process. Mm -hmm. And that means that, for example, if your partner decide, the British citizens decide to come back to the UK, he will have to work for six months and, you know, uh, accomplish again the threshold that Joe was talking in terms of earning, you know, more than £18,600 in order to bring into the country, even if you already have been married for mm. many years. You know, so the process is not straightforward. You need to complete this cycle of five years yeah. in order to apply to the indefinite to remain in the naturalization without cutting in the middle. Otherwise, you start from scratch. Yeah. So there are, I mean, there are a number of, of kind of bureaucratic hoops that you need to, mm -hmm. need to jump through there. So there's kind of proof of cohabitation or proof of intent to live together, as well as the financial threshold. Um, there's also, you need to provide proof of an ongoing and subsisting relationship. Mm -hmm. um, so this could be things like marriage certificates being a kind of dominant uh, way of proving that, but also, I mean, civil partnerships are put on the same pedestal as that now as well, um, but also proof of, have, of living together and proof of sort of shared responsibilities as well. Yeah. Those sort of dominant ideas about domesticity and, and kind of shared responsibilities within the household there. Um, for same-sex partnerships, um, for people that aren't married, um, you have to show that you share joint responsibilities and have lived together for two years prior to the application as well. So that's a kind of more onerous yeah. process of evidencing. Um, you're also encouraged to submit extra documents detailing your life together, uh, which we're going to go on to in a second. Um, and it's worth noting as well that there's quite a high threshold for a um, standard of English as well. Um, so um, they, they changed that in 2012 as well. Or Is it can, an IELTS score? Or maybe not? Um, it's a CFRA1 right. accreditation, <laughs> which apparently is like a European-wide accreditation, yeah. which I'm, I'm not as familiar with. Um, mm. It probably has an equivalent with this whole score, yeah. but that's what appears in the... One of the things that Joe, I think, emphasised, which is quite relevant and that we explore in the paper that we want to discuss with you, is the issue of showing that you are a genuine, genuine relationship. Mm. So basically, they encourage to write a narrative of your relationship where you include pictures together and proof of your life together, you know. So it's not enough that you show all your bank accounts, you know, joint bank accounts, the bills together, the addresses that you share. You also have to show this narrative. Mm. And that's quite interesting because... A lot of the media is discussing how in the case of Meghan Markle, because they have all, and, and her Prince Harry, they have all this media attention, the proof is there. Yeah. The relationship is visible and tangible, mm. you know? But if you are a nobody like the rest of us, you know, you really have to prove that things. Mm. And that becomes another interesting intricacy within, you know, the visa application, that you have to build up this narrative and collect all this material, mm. which create a, a, a labor, you know, um, a, an act of labor, of what we call the labor of love, of putting these stories together and the attachment that you feel to each paper, because that will be proof of where you are and what you are as a couple as well. Yeah, I think we're going to go on to that uh, next. Uh, just another technical question. Yeah. <laughs> um, because there is the financial uh, requirement yeah, yeah. that uh, basically the sponsor or the, the British citizen needs to earn over, what's it, 18,600. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but isn't it also that you're not allowed to claim any benefits or anything like that during yeah. this That's time? That's right, yeah, there's no recourse public funds. So the, and this is not just the spouse, but actually the British citizen. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's complicated because obviously you know you still have rights to to the welfare state, but it but you can't be the spouse can't be seen as directly benefiting from those things. I suppose they go hand in hand because if you had 
if you were on job six allowance, something you wouldn't breach the threshold anyway. But there are other things. No, unless that you have you savings, could... which again you probably wouldn't get job six. So you can have you can have cash savings of of sixty two thousand eight hundred, I think, and cash savings oh. to the root, which is a crazy amount of money. Um, um, but yeah, that that would deny you various welfare benefits anyhow. Yeah, but what about things like um, child benefit and things like that? Um, it depends who. Uh, I don't think you can't claim. I don't think you can claim child benefit, but I have to. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, but a bit, of course, like yeah. there's a lot of grey areas there yeah. about what like kind of financial uh, benefits are. But that, but that show you the difficulties as well, you know, because for instance, you might have that one British citizens might be an independent worker. So it might mm. be that within the six months period that they show you to, you know, they ask you to show that you earn more than 18,600. It might be that you don't do that. So maybe one month you earn less than, than yeah. what's requested and your application might be denial under those bases. Right, okay. So, you know, they, and also another thing to clarify that this is the question that students always ask and friends always ask. One that you get your um, your spouse visa, yeah. you are never allowed either to um, uh, claim benefits. Yeah. So basically, yeah. in a way, the the partner of a British citizen is always contributing, you know, to the economy. In a way. And of course, as well, on top of that, there's a, the standard NHS charge. Which of, course, of course, yeah, yeah. Now, if you go through this route, you have to pay. All right. Which how, much, well. how much is that then? It was for the. Um, it increased now, so I think it changed now. It was two hundred per year, I think. So. I think it's gone up. And it's gone up. Yeah, it went to double now, since this year. And that's per child or dependent. That's as per, well. the, per, per, per applicant yeah, and the per applicant. applicant yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So let's move on to um to your paper. Should I you tell you a little bit more about the paper? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Just, yeah. yeah, just give a brief overview, uh, just what you did in this paper. Right. Well, so how it came clear so far in the interview, Joe is the expert here on family migration, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I've been working through my research in different aspects of migration, including some of citizenship and belonging, but not with a particular a focus on family migration. Now, both of our families uh, share the characteristic that we have been through the family application visa. And we have discussed this, you know, in the corridors of the department, <laughs> you know, in the university, doing cafes, which already generate that type of intense intimacy because mm -hmm. it's not something that you usually discuss with your colleagues. It's not that they ask you, it's like, how your visa application is going? It's not an <laughs> usual question, you know. And when we start engaging in these conversations, we realize of this, you know, the intimacy that was producing of us relating, you know, to our stories. Um, but at the same time, it came a lot of questions of how uh, these type of intimacies are reproduced within the family and with all the actors involved in the visa process. And that's when Joe, kindly enough, invited me to participate uh, in this paper, and that is currently under review with geopolitics. Um, and, and we had a lot of conversations about this because, as we tell in the paper, and as we told you before, everything that we put to, uh, towards our showing our relationship, it became in our evidence. So well, there were questions as well of how the paper in itself, it might become evidence of our relationships and what <clears throat> we have to show to the state. So we had a lot of conversations of how we can overcome this, you know, and, and resist as well to, to these type of practices. And, and that's why we work with a, com with a promise of intimacy, not only in terms to explore it as a theoretical concept, but also as a methodological stance. And for that, we draw in a lot of uh, feminist research 
and, and we stage different conversations with our partners, with friends, with colleagues and close people that have gone through the visa process to try to understand the life and the afterlife of the visa we call, which is kind of all the, the temporalities, the different temporalities, but also the different spaces um, of intimacy that the visa produced during you know, the application, but also after the application, where you wait a response or where you prepare for the next application. Uh, and that's what we did. Mm. So we staged these different conversations and we decide to include ourselves as subjects of the research as well. That's what we call our, you know, our position and our participants, we decide to call ourselves collaborators. So the way that we write the paper is that no particular quote uh, is identifiable to any of the participants. So we are all collaborators. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I hope the paper is published soon because it's a very powerful read, I think, so I hope uh, many people will be able to read it. Um, but maybe, I don't know, maybe, Joe, if you want to explain, um, uh, Mars has already mentioned that this is the whole, the main kind of theme is mm. this notion of intimacy and yeah. that the whole process mm. of applying is one of intimacy. So what exactly do you mean by that? Yeah, no, that's a, I think that's a nice place to start. So I think in the paper we're defining intimacy as a particular type of social sexual effect. Mm. So it's about uh, a sense of proximity, um, about kind of notions of, of kind of being together in a particular place at one point together. So we're kind of taking quite a broad notion of intimacy. Um, often ideas of intimacy are kind of collapsed into um, the idea of kind of like sexual relationships essentially. Uh, we're trying to think a little bit more broadly about that to bring in kind of moments of, of tension, of friendship, of togetherness, of, of, of connectivities, which also feel intimate and a kind of um, sites of particular emotional exchange, to put it another way as well. Um, I think yeah. that's an important point, you know, I think like the, the motive aspect of intimacy, it was reflected in the paper in the different like type of feelings, you mm. know, and reactions that our collaborators and <laughs> us had through the visa process. So we kind of describe a little bit intimacy in relation to different feelings like such as love, mm. but anger, you know, anxiety and fear mm. and how those all, all those play along, you know, in terms of sometimes in, you know, intention or actually in contraposition or sometimes together. Uh, in this life and afterlife of the visa process that we call. I think that's a really, that's a really nice way of putting it. I, mean, I think sort of more broadly, we, we were trying to get away from the idea, I mean, I've told a particular history of, of family migration as a particularly violent one. Um, often the work on family migration looks at the way in which intimacy is intervened upon in various ways by the mm. state. Um, and that's really valid research and, and, and should be looked at more. But what we were trying to think about is how the visa also produces forms of intimacy as well. So how, how it produces new social relationships, mm -hmm. how it produces particular kinds of effects, how it does particular things as well, that's what we were getting at. Um, so for, for an example, um, I mean, the writing of the paper itself was mm. a particular intimate process because mm. it's about sharing things between yeah, yeah. Master and myself and also with other colleagues. Um, and so that, that was about creating new types of social relationships and new kind of political sites where emotions kind of fed through. So. Um, that's that's our kind of emphasis in the paper. I think. Yeah, and I thought exactly following from that, one thing that I found really interesting was that um, you described in a way that uh, the process of applying actually affected the very relationships mm. themselves. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that you have to kind of well, some of the collaborators were talking about having to act like an ideal family to sort of mm. prove that you you're genuine. Um, so. You know, do you want to elaborate a little bit more on how yeah. how actually 
people's relationships are affected by by this whole family migration process it's very interesting because in a way it doesn't only affect your family relation you know between you and your partner and your children you know and all the ones directly involved in the application it also generates as well other type of relationship for instance with your solicitor you know or with your family abroad or with your family here with your colleagues with your friends and all these different entities that support your visa application in terms of giving you papers, I don't know, human resources, you know, bank statements. So you have all these different organizations being part of the visa application in one way or another one. Mm -hmm. Now, the most intimate aspect of it is, is the one that is produced within the family. And this is interesting because the, both the British citizens and, you know, and the third country national, they're both engaged in this dynamic of collecting papers, you know, doing this labor of gathering evidence. But of course, there's a different power relationship there as well, because mm. one is securing the country and the other one is the one is exposing himself or herself to deportation, you know, and, and that creates anyway a difficult, a different dynamic. The person that is the country national is always, of course, even more concerned to the fact that there might be a bad consequence to your visa application and you might be deported. So the, if you want to know, that generates a different tension within the family, even if both are totally on board, you know, and, and doing the visa application. Um, but then at the same time, is the one that you mentioned is that all the papers that we're gathering, all the, the evidence that we're putting together is there to show that you are a genuine and you know, subsisting uh, in a subsisting relationship. Uh, and that means that in a way, as a family, you have to accomplish what is expected you know, from you as a family in terms of um, reaching different goals you know, uh, and what those goals are. So there's a lot of questions. Some of our collaborators are children mm. and other ones didn't. Uh, should you have children to show that you are a valid, uh, you know, you're in a valid relationship? Should you, is, is it necessary for you to buy a house to show that you are a correct family? What does it make you a family? You know, it comes to the core of mm. the question, what shows that you're a family? I remember one of our collaborators mentioned during the interview, which was very interesting, how uh, the person realized that when they were putting the narrative of the family together, all the pictures that they had as a family, they always looked so serious. You know, like, and, uh, and the question is like, are they going to believe that we are a sham marriage because we are so serious all the time? There's no happiness in our relationship, you know? So you start to second guess and question yourself and that generates as well other type of intimacies yeah. within the process. Anything no, you yeah, I, mean, I think, I think that, that, that's a really, really wonderful example of the way in which like the, the, there are cultural frames around what can be made intelligible as love, mm -hmm. what can be known as love. A romantic love in particular and the type of history there is of, of dominant ideas of love um so you know you mentioned there this is about happiness yeah, right? yeah. you know as if like love is attached to happiness and what particular bodies can look happy in particular settings mm -hmm. and how that's framed within a particular document right and of course there are you know alternative forms of kinship which you know like do things differently um so it's always about how you prove yourself to be in a particular way to the state and to dominant ideas of kind of heteronormativity, mm -hmm. I think, yeah. um, because while same-sex relationships are um, illegally recognised within the visa process, the kind of dominant ideas about what a family is remain kind of bound yeah. to kind of heteronormative um, histories. And um, also from sort of touching upon something that Marcia said there, um, I mean, what we're trying to get out in the paper is that these sites of intimacy are, are, are not free of, of kind of racist and gendered processes here. Right? And, uh, like intimacy is, is structured and shaped and reproduces all of those kind of historical oppressions. 
Um, you know, and I, you know, I think about my kind of privileged position, you know, kind of maleness and, and whiteness and the way in which that kind of shields me from some of that. And that's, you know, that, that reflects particular dynamics about the fact that I might be a citizen or, or a migrant and the types of power relations that work within a couple mm-hmm. right, and that are reproduced by these bordering mechanisms and by the visa, they kind of reanimate them in particular ways, mm. um, you know, and that, that has everyday consequences, you know, in those kind of intimate sites. Maybe if I ask one question that um, I didn't I didn't tell you before, sorry, <laughs> but I just <laughs> um, but I just um, realised now we're kind of the more critical the critical question would be from someone claiming well all this is necessary to prevent mm. um, forced marriages. You know how much how how much of is there any truth in that? Because obviously there are cases of forced marriages, and mm. is this like a <laughs> is this a very good way of uh, stopping them happening? <laughs> Um, I mean, as a short answer, no. I mean, I, I can't see how... I mean, it, that's been the rhetoric around a lot of this, yeah. right? Is, is that this is about identifying sham marriages, so those kind of genuine ones, but also, you know, in a very kind of paternalistic way, protecting um, particular women from certain communities in the UK from forced marriage, right? That's the kind of, like, the, the, the dominant ideas around that. Um, but, I mean, there... And there, there are there are kind of dominant concerns about forced marriage which need to be taken seriously. But the idea that immigration practices are any way a way to solve that, you know, I mean this you know this creates um, divisions within kind of diasporic communities in the UK. Um, and if you look at the voices of people actually on the ground working with um, women who suffer various forms of domestic violence um, within minority communities, such as um, like in Khan then their, their perspective on this is very much, there are other ways to deal with this, mm-hmm. right? I mean, for instance, you know, the, the history of the visa coming in follows the exact um, programme of austerity, which has closed down, you know, women's shelters and spaces for people to go who suffer domestic violence, right? So, you know, the, the idea that this is protecting people is, can be narrowly disproved at every point along the way. And, you know, particularly, the fact that most most women's shelters um, that can do the kind of best help with forced marriage would be um, women's shelters run, you know, by people of colour who can understand the particular type of difficulties people go through. Um, those are often the first ones to lose funding, right? So, you know, if if you could see lots of programmes of support there, then you might be able to believe that rhetoric a little bit more. But it, it looks very very shaky. Mm. Yeah, just to add that, I think that what Joe says is a great, you know, um, example of basically how racialized, you know, mm. the family visa is, and and how these arguments in terms of how what prevent actually they don't have they don't they then they don't they don't have enough weight to actually show what the default the visa produces in terms of separating families, you know. Mm. So I think that the they're devastating effects of the visa, not only in the intimacy relations that produce that we explore in the paper, but there's also real consequences. So we actually recognize in the paper that there's a very large body of literature, you know, exploring uh, shame, mm. you know, um, family v, um, applications, or actually people that are in disadvantage in terms of application itself. But the visa produce an exclusionary process, you know, so basically means that only certain type of people 
can apply for it and certain type of families can succeed applying. So there's a large, I don't know, probably half of the British population wouldn't be able to bring their parents from abroad because they don't earn the amount of money that they need, you know, uh, because it's difficult for them to show um, that they live together when maybe works one person works in one country and the other one works in another one. So I, I think there's so many elements of the visa that show the, the politics of inclusion and exclusion, you know, and, and how where you accomplish more of these elements uh, that make you part of this heteronormative ideal of what a family is uh, allows you to be in the UK. So it kind of the, the, mm. it's so so it's so deep how the visa produce exclusion in the UK that the argument of how we can actually prevent force um, you know marriages is actually not even there. It's yeah. not part of it. You know, mm. it's so racialized. It's so exclusive. You know, and it comes to the point of what Joe was saying at the end at the beginning. It's kind of you can, it comes to the point that you can buy your rights and there's only certain people that is able to do though, you know? Yeah. Um, to return to the paper, um, you already mentioned at the start, uh, Marcia, how uh, it was quite difficult to work out how you were going to actually write the paper, mm. um, especially using yourselves as subjects and um, and being part of the visa application process yourself, so uh, or having been part of it, but um, did you ever think let's not do it? Like it's too risky. Mm. I, I think me and Joe in particular, we were so eager to get in this discussion <laughs> that probably we we didn't think that much about it. But our <laughs> collaborators, mm. they, some of them express fear. Mm. Like we we engage with them and in the information you know we provide and the when they sign the consent form when we talk about all the ethical procedures and possible risk of the paper we discussed this risk you know yeah. uh, and despite that all our collaborators were very generous to talk with us all of them express the same fear mm. you know how this would be able to um, how this information would be able to try to be traced to me you know how can affect our applications or future applications because most of our collaborators we are all in ongoing processes none of, mm. of the collaborators has a indefinite to remain or mm. naturalization you know uh, so there's a real risk there, not for us as authors, but maybe because we were more, you know, excited about the possibility of discussing these issues, yeah. but for the people that talk to us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, you know, the, there is a potential of for the, the paper in a way to become a document for the state to use. Right? Mm -hmm. So some, something we were quite aware of is that, you know, the whole time if we're thinking about the way in which um, evidence is used in particular processes to basically deny people rights, like, you know, the, this is there as a document that could be drawn upon. We're very aware of that. So the particular like writing strategies and, and methods we use are there to kind of um, make some of those particular voices ambiguous. So you don't know who's speaking and, and things like that. That's a, that's a particular kind of political ethical um, technique that we drew upon. We did consider at some point the issue of authorship at, at some point. Mm. I remember we discussed this with Joe, but really in the current environment, you know, of, uh, of academia mm. um, and publication, that was really yeah. something that we couldn't really, we took out of the question of the table very To be anonymous. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, yeah. Structures like the ref and the way that they can yeah. 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 things, you know. Yeah. Like, like, that's not there. really going to go down. <laughs> <laughs> But speaking of the fear that you were just mentioning, mm. so I think this comes through a lot in the paper, this fear and anxiety that this process 
is uh, causing people mm. and like you said it's it's a recurring process mm. because yeah, you yeah. need to reapply yeah. um, quite frequently so yeah. it's almost like instilling this like constant mm-hmm. uh, anxiety and fear and returning to the um, royal wedding happening this uh, that's obviously as far from fear and anxiety as you can as you can get very happy celebration you know wish them all the mm-hmm. best of luck um, but I wonder if it's almost like a bit irres- irresponsible that there hasn't been more of a discussion about the fast track treatment of Meghan Markle mm. and I know you mentioned uh, to start um, Marcia um, my own experience because I've just married a British citizen being an EU citizen myself and I quite frequently get people asking me so Brexit won't affect you anymore then mm-hmm. and I always have to point out well no because if I become like a current third country national and mm-hmm. having then I have to go through this visa mm. uh, process and that's really something that even though I don't know even that much about it that's something that doesn't appeal to me whatsoever but it seems to me that the public perception is like you said that if you marry your British citizen you're pretty much automatically guaranteed the right to stay here and it just seems like I don't know what you think maybe the the Meghan Markle fast track also kind of reinforces this idea that it's all I think it's a double sword in a way because one thing that I've seen in the media is that actually has sparkled some debate, you know, uh, the, probably not all the media in general, you know, they only, they, but some, there's some discussion around. There has been a couple of more uh, press reports about what the family visa entails, you know, what is the procedure and they're ready that they call it a fast track that make you, you know, that make you understand there's a, um, an ex- you know, a kind of exclusive process mm. for the for the royal wedding in particular. Um, I do think whatsoever that what you, however that uh, it might reproduce certain stigmas, you know, and misconception about what family visa is. Um, but that happened with general migration, you know, like there's so many misconceptions about yeah. what uh, different type of visa title, you know, mm. what type of uh, I know public funds people can get to, you know, and what are the different routes in the UK that I think we need a more general education about all type of family visas, not only the family one. Um, but I do, I do welcome some debate about it. But of course, I yeah. understand that it's a limited media, the one that is willing to engage with this debate about the different types of, you know, yeah. family experiences. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's two things to be said about that. I mean, first is that the commentary around the royal wedding already does a lot of political work to conceal a hell of a lot of inequality generally in the UK, right? I mean, you can think about all of the, the discourse about Britain being this kind of multicultural, progressive, like welcoming place because we now have a princess who's a person of colour, right? Who's a woman of colour. Mm. Um, and all of the kind of discourse around that is highly problematic in the way in which it, it kind of signifies the royal family as being some sort of progressive institution when, of course, it's kind of wrapped up with huge amounts of structural inequality, um, you know, kind of like deep city links to empire, kind of political economy of the Commonwealth, the fact that Prince Charles will then become, you know, the next head of the mm. Commonwealth, all of the kind of structural violence of, of land ownership in the UK, which is completely concealed in this huge heteronormative spectacle of like the wedding day. You know, it does a lot to obliterate any critique of, of, of those inequalities more broadly. Um, I mean, the way in which I can see it silencing the kind of debate around family migration in particular is that the, the wedding itself kind of reproduces this idea that somehow marriage is above politics, right? Like, mm. you know, it goes back to your idea. Yeah. Like, if only, you know, this is a dominant idea. You know, what if you marry somebody, well, like, that's because it's, you know, it's the heteronormative 
institutional par excellence mm -hmm. that blurs all borders and it blurs all gendered power relations yeah. and it blurs all yeah. racialized structures. Yeah. Like it's just about love, right? Which is this powerful cliche, right? But I think it reproduces that idea that like, oh well, it'll all be okay as long as we get married, right? Which obviously silences all the stuff we've we've talked about. Um, and there's some questions there about how and whether Meghan Markle is even rendered a migrant, right? I mean, you know, there's lots of interesting kind of commentary and nationalist anxiety about her status as a woman of colour, um, you know, but she's often rendered as a particularly good migrant and, and her Americanness kind of complicates some of the kind of racialization of her in the UK context. Um, and we'll, I think we'll sort of see how that, that plays out. Um, I just sort of don't want to downplay the symbolic value of that, but you know it does some political work. Um, the second point that Marcia touched upon that I just want to you know kind of maybe draw out a little bit as well, which is that this is very much about a structural amnesia and collective forgetting about immigration practices broadly, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like we really want to set the paper within that yeah. that discussion. Um, you know, the the whole Windrush affair recently kind of brought up this this discussion around immigration and, and empire more broadly, but you know, it, it still relied upon very problematic ideas and assumptions about who's a good migrant and who's, who's a bad migrant. migrant. Mm -hmm. You know, well, mm -hmm. you, you see that in the kind of progressive discussion, you know, inverted commas about this from the Labour Party, right? You see people like Diane Abbott who, you know, I kind of think like you should have better from her. Um, but, you know, reproducing this idea that, well, the Windrush generation were good legal migrants, so we need to protect them. But at the same time, we need to crack down on illegal migrants and that just doesn't reflect the fact that like the whole border system is there to criminalize people it's there to pick up on tiny infractions and to make people into illegal migrants you know um and it denies the fact that there's a huge deportation machinery kind of institutions that detain people and deport people on tiny immigration infractions um you know and the fact that huge amounts of people are, are deported to to the West Indies on a, on a kind of regular basis. Like it sees that as being fine. You know, people that have lived here for, for years, who have settled here but don't have um, indefinitely to remain or, um, or kind of like settled status, um, any kind of criminal infraction that they, they might be involved with can now be used to basically expel them. Um, you know, I think that's very, it's very telling that the, the British government is, is at, at the moment kind of building prisons in, in places like Jamaica um, to house... Yeah people who have migrant status but have committed criminal offences so you know it, it hides a lot of a lot of that stuff and I think that that's where some of the campaigns around the family migration visa are a little bit problematic because it tends to say well it's the family migration visa that's the big problem here right and, and I think we sort of broadly disagree with yeah. that as a particular route um, I think of the kind of Brit sites campaign campaigns um, such as the divided family campaigns which tend to say the real big problem here is about um, limiting families in a particular way because it it restricts and intervenes like the goods natural process of family life and within those campaigns you can see you know people are held up to be like you know good white families that are being interrupted here and I think a lot of that's very problematic and the work of Bridget Burns has been quite good in teasing some of this out um, so we need to be really, really careful about the, the, the politics of some of this, like mm -hmm. how we contest border practices more broadly. We don't just fixate upon family migration as a particular type of social injustice. We kind of link it together with other forms of, of bordering practices. And, and that's something we try and draw on our paper, right? which is that our privilege within this process. Yeah, yeah. That's basically um, the main point of the paper, by exploring our intimacies, you know, and the intimacies that are produced during and after the visa application, 
we really kind of try to highlight how through our privilege of being, you know, uh, cisgender, identifying as a cisgender, we mm. are, you know, heterosexual couples, all that were collaborators. We are all married, so we have the legality of the state up mm-hmm. there. And also we have the resources to be able to be part of the system. And also in our own attempts to try to uh, reproduce what is requested from us as family, we ended up validating the system. You know, we are in a privileged position here and we really reflect and we are quite critical of, of our position in that and how we reproduce, you know, mm. the geopolitics of the visa family and also the, the border mechanisms of the state by actually accomplishing all these uh, mm. different elements that are requested from us. So that's kind of like the main argument of the paper at the end, you know. There's a different intimacies being produced, but at the same time, we reproduce through these intimacies and our, you know, compliance what is requested, we reproduce bordering practices. That's what we're doing mm. through the visa application. And hopefully we'll be able to read the paper soon. Before we finish, Joe, your book, what's it called and when can we read it? <laughs> <laughs> hopefully soon. So I'm in the, the last stages of finishing the manuscript, but it's going to be called Making Love, Making Empire. And hopefully it will be out sometime next year. Making Love, Making Empire. Remember Stay that? tuned. <laughs> Stay tuned indeed for both... Dr. Joe Turner's forthcoming book as well as the paper that we've been discussing in this episode which hopefully will be published soon. And to find out more about the work of uh, both our guests as well as some of the work that's been cited in this episode, please visit our website talkingmigration.com. But that was all we had for this time. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 